0: K-A-L-W.
1: A A lot of people are very upset about the transformation of this city and, you know, how it has been transformed by great wealth.
0: Today, how wealthy entrepreneurs are influencing city government through money and social media.
1: You can't wish death upon people in a public forum, in front of your 400,000 online followers, and simultaneously be a good actor.
0: A conversation with Mission Local reporter Joe Eskenazi. Then we meet Japanese-American farmers who were incarcerated during World War
2: II and resisted. I stood on my constitutional right. You can't do this to American citizens.
0: Farmers behind barbed wire fences. I'm Hannah Baba, and this is Cross Currents. Last month, Gary Tan, CEO of venture capital firm Y Combinator, shared a profanity-laced message on X, formerly known as Twitter. He ended it by wishing a slow death to seven members of San Francisco's Board of Supervisors and their loved ones. Tan claimed he was drunk at the time he sent the message and removed the post, and he has apologized. But his message underscores a fear that many people in the Bay Area have that wealthy entrepreneurs can Influence not only the manner of discourse, but also the fate of elections. Recently, KLW Sunni Khalid spoke with Joe Eskenazi, columnist and editor at Mission Local, about the meaning behind Tan's message.
3: Gary Tan has been involved in local politics for a long time. He lives in San Francisco and Noe Valley. Did this surprise you, this outburst, and what do you think prompted it? There have always been successful
1: wealthy businessmen who have dumped a lot of money into san francisco politics and have you know tried to influence and kind of pull the city to where they'd want it to go tan's no different in that sense what's different is that he kind of takes upon the persona of like a wrestling heel there's a weird behavior online and almost every story about him mentions that he's an affable person and i've never met gary tan but, you know, his online persona is, is astounding. Lots of incredibly overheated rhetoric, a lack of knowledge about the arcane matters of the city that really do matter. And then finally, it culminated in, in what you were talking about when he kind of appropriated the Tupac Shakur diss track, hit him up, and uh, wished a slow death upon all the supervisors. And I don't know how profane your podcast can be, but it was a rather profane way of doing things. So the profanity wasn't the problem.
3: What was the problem?
1: The problem is that you can't wish death upon people in a public forum in front of your 400,000 online followers and simultaneously be a good actor. What Gary Tan did was legal. I talked to half a dozen attorneys, including Erwin Shermarinsky, who's the Dean of UC Berkeley Law School and one of the foremost First Amendment scholars in the country. It doesn't make it smart and it doesn't make it right. Unhinged people do unhinged things and can be set off in a number of ways. And on top of that, there's just no redeeming value of it. Gary Tan is entitled to his opinions as much as anybody, but I don't see what purpose it serves to have chilling rants about people being killed or dying slowly and address them by name. It would be much more beneficial if he just
3: went after the policies. He uh, contributed $100,000 to the recall that uh, succeeded in um, ousting uh, Chesapeake Boudin, right? He
1: was involved in that and in the recall of the school board members and and other things, candidate races as well, as he's entitled to be and as wealthy and, and, you know, people of moderate means are entitled to be. A lot of people are very upset about the transformation of this city and, you know, how it has been transformed by great wealth and to the point where there's very few cities in the United States where you can see such disparities as San Francisco. On the one hand, you know, cities change. On the other hand, you know, there is a great resentment in San Francisco of, newcomers coming in and trying to make things, shall we say, more as they were accustomed to. So you get what other people have called a suburban urbanist, people who want to enjoy what's best about a city, cultural nightlife, food, the things to do, but bristle at poverty, visible poverty and perceptions of lack of safety and may or may not call the police on their neighbors. Now, I'm not accusing Mr. Tan of this, but like that is something that uh, a number of longtime San Franciscans, particularly from communities of color, have an experience with,
3: you covered Chesa Boudin's the, the recall election. Mission Local covered the school board elections. Mm-hmm. I live in East Bay, and uh, I'm trying to follow what's going on with uh, the Alameda County DA Pam Price, who's been in office for many years. She's already facing a recall effort. Is this a real or imagined fear by some that the wealthy can basically pick the government or pick the politicians that they want? to run the city or the county or the region?
1: Yes and no, because sooner or later, you will have recall fatigue. This is something that's novel at this point, but it won't be forever. With that said, separate and apart from her own image problems and her own comportment as district attorney, and uh, both of Boudin and Pam Price, regardless of their merits as attorneys and as people, do not strike me as the most skilled politicians. Once the recall qualifies, She's done. And that's because that is the nature of a ranked choice candidate. You know, both Chase Boudin and Pam Price won with relatively low percentage of the first round votes. And then through the permutations of ranked choice voting, they were the eventual winners. And that doesn't delegitimize your victory, but it does mean that you never at one point had 50 plus percent of the people who were really for you. So when it comes down to you versus yourself, yes or no, which is what a recall is, you're done. And there's almost no city officials, there's almost no public officials in San Francisco or, or probably Oakland that are going to survive such a vote. If it's just you versus nobody and you like this guy, almost every city official will lose. And in fact, the people who ran Chase's campaign to try and stave off the recall told me the only citywide official who polled lower than Chase of Boudin was Mayor Breed. Who's facing re-election this fall. That's right. But this is a different dynamic when you're running against other people and you're able to explain what you'll do and what you've done and all that sort of thing. But if you're just running against yourself, like, do we like you or not? You know, you you look at the polling negatives on Mayor Breed. They're very high. Against herself, she'll lose. But against the field as it stands, I'd say that she
3: has the clearest path to victory. Whether we like it or not, I think we're probably in the age of Trump where incivility is the rule as opposed to the exception. I mean, to me,
1: it's not just so much the incivility. Nobody in San Francisco is espousing Trumpist positions. But the demeanor is becoming that way. And the lack of belief in objective fact and the speculative nature of things strikes me as being more acceptive in a Trumpian world. For example, after Gary Tan's incredibly ill-advised tweet five supervisors received a photocopy more or less of his tweet with the message Gary Tan was right I wish you and your loved ones a slow death and this was mailed snail mail to their homes and you know the kind of thing that your children or your significant other will pick up and when my outlet and others wrote about this a number of people some of them ostensibly not crazy and some of them you know well known within the tech universe said that's the most obvious false flag I've ever seen this is obviously sent by you know somebody in the Democratic Socialists of America so I would say this level of conspiracy theory mongering and just an inability to stay within the four corners of facts, that's not new, but I'd say it's more acceptable under Trump, as is a hyper-partisanship where it doesn't matter how bad what someone does if they're your people, and it doesn't matter how good or bad what someone does if they're not your people. It's just straight up partisanship up or down and an inability to just say like, hey, what, what happened here was unacceptable no matter who did it.
0: That was Joe Eskenazi, columnist and editor at Mission Local, speaking with KLW News editor Sunni Khalid. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hannah Baba. This weekend, people around the Bay Area are gathering to commemorate the Day of Remembrance that takes place on Monday. It marks the 82nd anniversary of President Franklin Roosevelt signing Order 9066 that gave the U.S. Army the authority to remove Japanese Americans from their homes. Over 120,000 people were placed in what were called relocation or internment camps. They were imprisoned there for up to four years you can still visit some of the sites of those camps today. In 2017, KELW's Lisa Morehouse joined a four-day pilgrimage to the former Tule Lake Segregation Center, just south of the California-Oregon border. She learned that agriculture was inextricably linked to the incarceration of Japanese Americans, and that the farm at the Tule Lake camp was essential to both their existence and their resistance.
4: This is the most remarkable bus ride I've ever taken. Sitting next to me are the survivors of prison camps like Tule Lake and their children and grandchildren. Buses like this one are also traveling from San Jose, Union City, Seattle, Portland. Over 450 people are converging for this pilgrimage. When we arrive at the college campus that will be our base, one of the first people I meet is Sacramento resident Richie Fua.
5: I wanted to see the place for the last time.
4: Fua's 98 years old and doesn't think he'll make this trip again. But his memories of being imprisoned at Tully Lake are crystal clear.
5: One nine nine four nine. That was my number. Government gave me.
4: He says, at his age, he doesn't remember his social security number, but he remembers this.
5: One nine nine four nine. You were more a number than a name.
4: Camp administrators assigned Fuwa that number when he was 24 years old, soon after he was forced off his family's Bellingham, Washington farm.
5: We raised all kinds of vegetables, carrots, tomato, strawberry, pea.
4: Before the war, nearly two-thirds of West Coast Japanese-Americans worked in agriculture. These farmers faced lots of discrimination. But despite that, by 1940, Japanese-Americans grew almost 40% of the produce in California. Then, the Japanese military bombed Pearl Harbor.
3: When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone.
4: As this 1940s-era film from the newly-created War Relocation Authority shows, resentment and hysteria grew toward anyone of Japanese origin, even though most were American citizens.
3: Most were loyal, but no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores.
4: On February 19, 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order which authorized removing people from military areas. Japanese Americans could read between the lines, the order was primarily aimed at them. Ninety-three-year-old Jim Tanimoto's family grew peaches in the Sacramento Valley town of Gridley.
2: The executive order 9066 was signed. Uh, things changed. That is why the commanding general of the Western Defense Command
3: determined that all Japanese within the coastal area should move inland.
4: Onto so-called relocation or internment camps. Many had to abandon their orchards and fields with crops ready to harvest.
1: Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. Two-thirds of the evacuees are American citizens by right of birth. The rest are their Japanese-born parents and grandparents.
4: Like Jim Tanamoto's immigrant father. But the younger generation was made up of California farm kids. Jim Tanamoto even grew up hunting in the Tule Lake Basin. But when he got off the train at Tule Lake in the summer of 1942, he saw a landscape dominated by barracks covered in black tar paper
2: there was rows and rows and rows of these buildings. You know, we were in, inside the barbed wire fence and the armed guard towers. If I cross this, I might get shot. Hey, I'm an American citizen. Now I'm the one that's being hunted.
4: The War Relocation Authority put it differently.
1: They are not prisoners. They are not internees. They are merely dislocated people. The unwounded casualties of war
4: but 15,000 Japanese Americans were forced to live here, behind barbed wire, and Tenamoto and others who were successful farm owners before the war were about to become field workers for the U.S. government.
2: So I first want
6: to say I'm very honored to be able to share this uh, tour with you today
5: and bring you around the camp.
4: On the pilgrimage, those of us on a bus tour have to imagine the guard towers and those rows of barracks long since torn down or moved. The terrain now is mostly dry, dusty land, a few dramatic rock outcroppings, and bright green, well-irrigated fields. I know
6: I had a question about the farming in the area, so I'll talk a little about that.
4: Over 1,000 Japanese-American incarcerees worked the land here, most earning just a quarter of what farm workers made at the time. Uh, But, you know,
6: potatoes, carrots, any kind of camp food that had to be stored here, that's what those
4: main storage facilities were for, off to our right. Agriculture was central to the development of the camps. Many of the new War Relocation Authority administrators came right from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Camp locations were often chosen for their existing government irrigation projects or agricultural potential. The government's intention was to improve ag land for use after the war. On the pilgrimage, I talk with people who were imprisoned here, who remember the food grown in the fields and served for dinner.
2: Winter crops uh, is what you grew, cabbage, rutabakers.
4: Rutabakers, I don't
6: think anybody liked them. Turnips. Quite long radishes for one
0: thing. Daikon? Daikon. Yeah.
5: Camp had a hog farm and the chicken farms, so we raised all the barleys and oats.
4: The goal was to have the camp grow and raise as much of its food as possible. When Tule Lake opened, eligible men who refused to work were threatened with crippling fines. All ten incarceration camps had working ag programs, but Tule Lake's was different. Despite the dust, snow, and wind, and a short growing season, the farm was on former lakebed. The rich soil and the expertise of the Japanese-American workers produced nearly 30 vegetable crops, plus hogs and chickens, enough to supply mess halls at Thule Lake and other camps. You know, they knew how to grow things. Before the war, Lucille Hitomi's father ran a commercial flower business in Mountain View. At Thule Lake, he worked the fields under white supervisors.
6: I remember my dad saying, I don't know if they were good farmers.
4: But those bosses relied on the expertise of the Japanese-American laborers to develop a productive farm. To keep some semblance of normalcy, families like Hitomi's tried to create special meals. It helped that her brother worked at the camp slaughterhouse.
6: I don't know if this was legal, but sometimes they would bring bits of meat home. And my mother had, she brought to camp a hot plate and uh, a frying pan, and
4: then she'd cook the meat at in the cabin uh, barrack. I guess it was more like home. The stated purpose of these farms was to feed incarcerees, but camp administrators took produce, grain, and hay— grown by these imprisoned Japanese-American workers and sold it on the open market, over 2 million tons of it from Tule Lake alone. At the pilgrimage, all the participants pack into a college auditorium, including a handful of people in their 90s.
6: coming, really, to help us tell the story of
4: Thule Lake. Writer and historian Barbara Takei tells the crowd they're all discovering the story of Japanese-American descent. That's because one year after ordering Japanese-Americans out of their homes, the government made every adult in every camp fill out a questionnaire. When I sit down with Barbara Takei, she explains...
6: This outrageous questionnaire was used to separate the so-called loyal from the disloyal.
4: Jim Tanamoto remembers two questions caused the most confusion and anger. Number 27 asked a person's willingness to join the armed forces.
2: 28 was the one that was really, it was sort of like a trick question. Would you cut your ties with Japan and the emperor?
4: If he answered yes, the only acceptable response for the U.S. government, it could mean that he had ties with Japan and its emperor.
2: Well, uh, I'm an American citizen and a Gridley farm boy. I have no ties with Japan or the emperor. So how was I to answer this question?
4: Tanamoto and all of the other young men in Block 42, his area of Tule Lake, refused to answer and got arrested and jailed in nearby towns.
2: I stood on my constitutional right. You can't do this to an American citizen.
4: The loyalty questionnaire radically changed the population and culture of Tule Lake. Adults from any of the 10 incarceration camps who didn't say yes to both questions, so-called no-nos, were labeled disloyal and sent to Tule Lake, where additional fences and guard towers went up. This was in the 1940s. Two decades before the Civil Rights Movement. Here's Barbara Tikay. Post Civil Rights Movement, we
6: realize that the right to protest is a precious American right. Um, it was something that people who were imprisoned in Tule Lake exercised. And because of that, they were punished.
4: By 1943, Tule Lake became the largest population center in California north of Sacramento ballooning to nearly 19,000 people, most of them labeled troublemakers. Camp got tense. With a larger workforce, the administrators expanded the farm and expected a huge harvest. But Japanese-American camp laborers complained of poor food rations and major safety concerns. Then, a truck accident on the farm injured nearly 30 laborers and killed one. Jim Tanamoto and Barbara Takei explain what happened next.
2: And the farm workers said, we're not going to work no more.
6: They recognized that they had leverage by having the strike right when the crops are ready to pick. So the director brought in other Japanese Americans from other camps.
2: Strike breakers, they came to harvest the crop.
6: The strikebreakers were also paid a dollar an hour. Uh, so in two days, they could make more than a farm worker uh, at Tule Lake would
4: make in a month. Camp administrators would not let the fields go unharvested. A few days later, the Tule Lake laborers had more to be angry about.
6: Workers saw a truck leaving uh, the warehouse area filled with food ostensibly to feed the strikebreakers.
4: 200 people
6: surrounded the truck. And that's what caused the uh, camp director to call in uh, a battalion with the tanks rolling in,
4: and uh, the camp was shut down. Japanese-American leaders were thrown in a stockade with no legal recourse. Within days... Martial law was declared... This marked the end of large-scale farming and the beginning of two tumultuous years at Tule Lake. The military raided barracks, and hundreds of people ended up in the stockade for months. There were more protests. A radical faction grew in camp. Eventually, thousands of Japanese Americans imprisoned at Tule Lake renounced their U.S. citizenship in a chaotic and confusing time. Reversing these renunciations took nearly 20 years. The Tule Lake Segregation Center closed in the spring of 1946, six months after the war ended. What remained were empty barracks that once housed families and thousands of acres of rich farmland. Ninety-eight-year-old Richie Fua remembers that the land he and other Japanese Americans improved was parceled off to veterans returning from war.
5: So the, when the soldiers came back and the, they wanted a the farmway, They could homestead that place.
4: Was that not offered to you? (laughs) No. (laughs) Some former incarcerees returned home and eventually rebuilt successful farm businesses. Not Richie Fua. His family's farm was overgrown, all the equipment stolen.
5: There's no way to express that feeling that when you see the place like that.
4: He soon left farming forever. By 1960, the number of Japanese-American farmers dropped to a quarter of their pre-war presence. With lost farms, homes, and businesses, it's estimated that wartime incarceration cost Japanese-Americans up to $4 billion in today's values. The non-economic losses, to Japanese Americans, to California, to the whole country are impossible to measure. Barbara Takei says, especially now, we must remember. How easily people,
6: uh, because of fear um, and anger, lose sight of our important national values of justice and rule of law.
4: Which, she says, we're seeing today with Muslim Americans, refugees, and immigrants. As though demonizing other people is going to solve our problems. All we have to do, she says, is look at World War II incarceration of Japanese Americans to see that's not true. At the former Thule Lake Segregation Center, I'm Lisa Morehouse for Currents. That piece first aired in
0: 2017, and it was originally produced for Lisa's podcast, California Foodways. It was scored with original music from Takenobu and produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative news organization. This Saturday afternoon, the National Japanese American Historical Society is holding a commemorative event in San Francisco's Japantown. We've got a link to all the details at KELW.org slash CrossCurrents. (music) i i <music> Today's Cross Currents team includes Steffi Puerto, Cheryl Kaskowitz, James Rollins, Ghanady Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shireen Hadil, Marisa Ortega Welch, Angela Johnston, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba.